Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. So this podcast is on our very first session of GLT Book Club. Where we were joined by Mark McCaw for his book, Teaching for Mastery. Let's get stuck in. Thank you very much, everybody, to coming. This is session four of our Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends book club. Um, we're going to be looking today at Teaching for Mastery by Mark McCourt. And we also are very honoured to have Mark with us here for the session. And he's going to be doing, um, he's going to introduce a bit bit about his book for us, especially part three, and take part in the conversations as well around the table. So just a little bit about Mark to begin with. Um, and there's quite a nice bio written at the front of his book as well. So he has done so many things. A leading figure in mathematics education, has led large-scale government education initiatives, director at the NCETM, school teacher, advanced skill teacher, um, teacher trainer, Ofsted inspector, senior leader, head teacher, but also uh, founder of LaSalle Education and Complete Maths and the Maths Comps that we all know and love so well. I think it's Maths Comp 25 this year and the mini in March and the mini Maths Comp, which is coming, I find it quite difficult to say that, is coming up in January too. So a man with an incredible CV and so much to say around the world of mastery, which is a direction that we're particularly interested in as a trust at the moment. So that is enough from me. And I would like very much to hand you a, to hand over to Mark, please. So he can give us a little bit of, of a talk about his book. Though before I do that, I will add that when Dave Tushingham and I met him last week, he did say that he hasn't read it since he wrote it and he wrote it in three days. I think it would take me more than three days to read it. So what a cracking book. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thanks, Rhiannon. Um, thank you very much for asking me along. Uh, it's all rather odd. Um, I did write it. In, well, it was actually a long weekend. So maybe maybe it went into the Monday morning. Who knows? Um, I was probably quite intoxicated writing quite a lot of it, as I'm sure you can tell if you've read it. Um, and Yeah, it's really lovely for you to ask me to come and join you when you're talking about my book what a what a what a really nice experience i don't write for other people i write purely for myself I, generally someone will ask me a question and it will provoke something i think i need to write that down um and this really came from quite a lot of people badgering me about you know you, you always bleat on about mastery being on going on about that for years what do you what do you actually mean by that um and i locked myself away and wrote so the book was originally a blog, um, which I wrote and thought about putting it online and then realized I don't think anyone's going to read a blog this length. So then I thought about cutting it up and putting it out in bits. And then eventually it just became a book. Um, but it's really nice that you, you, you're, you know, you, you've taken the time to read it and you find it interesting. Um, part three was, you know, a lot of people today are very interested in cognitive science and 
cognitive science is really what made me become a teacher. So um, John B. Carroll, who's one of my all-time heroes uh, and was a hero long before I thought about becoming a teacher, I was always fascinated by this idea of how the human mind works, how the brain works, how intelligence works. And hardly any, hardly any teachers know John B. Carroll yet. Lots of teachers talk about cognitive science. They talk about the superstars like the Bjorks and Sweller, people like that. Um, but really, John B. Carroll is the man. You know, if, you, if there's someone, someone you think, well, whose book should I read? It, it's John B. Carroll, certainly not mine. It should be his. The trouble about John B. Carroll, although brilliant teacher and incredibly smart guy and wrote lots of really interesting stuff, is his writing is impenetrable. <laughs> it's his he had a book at the start of the 90s which is like war and peace you know this is a huge thing it's incredibly difficult to get through um but it is worth the pain and uh when i was writing about mastery i, I thought well you know i have to come back to carol because really along with along with bloom and uh, a couple of others but mainly the two of them they rediscovered mastery they rediscovered the 1920s mastery model and started rolling it out at the scale that had never been rolled out before so he was kind of responsible for it so any book about mastery really needs to contain a book about how the mind works and you know what what do we think of to be a learned person what does that mean to be an educated person what does that mean to us what does it look like and feel like and how might we achieve that um, so I included in the book, obviously, a bit about John, but also what's really nice about having been involved in writing and talking about mastery for however many decades. What's really nice about that is some things you have. I think this might be true. I think that this might come to be shown to be true. And of course, along the way, people are carrying out detailed, interesting work and sometimes people will stumble upon things. So in the, in the 70s, this idea, for example, of interleaving became a thing really from military research. And that, that became a thing and people, and then teachers heard about this and thought, maybe that will work in education. And a few people tried, let's see if this works in education. Uh, I remember writing a thing about mastery in 2010, in which I say, yeah, I think interleaving will be an important thing in mathematics education. And then 2017, Rohr and Taylor come along and go, there you go. There's there's the data. There we've shown it. Still propositional knowledge. But I love that. I love that these these things either get confirmed or rejected. You know, sometimes you think, like, this feels like there's something in this. And then someone comes along and says, I get why that feels good, but it's not true. Um, you know, so things like if you yeah. Mm, if, if, if you make uh, if you make children really motivated, they'll become successful. That feels good, doesn't it? If you say that as a person, that feels right, instinctively feels right. And then, of course, people look at this and find out, actually, it's if you make them successful, they become motivated. And I love those little moments. Um, so that's really what part three was about, was about taking John's work and looking at who since john died who has extended that work and who has confirmed or or put right some of the ideas that we thought uh you know in the early 90s so that's what that section's about and i hope that's what it's about because uh, i've had to go and find a copy of the book uh 
because I really haven't read the book. Um, and I was a bit worried the other day when I was talking to Dave and Rhiannon, they you know, said, so come and talk about the book. And I was thinking, I wonder if it's any good. <laughs> so, so I've had a quick flick just now. Um, seems okay, right? So I did, I, I'm not overly embarrassed about it, but I'm really looking forward to hearing any thoughts you have about it and anything you'd like to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm here as a humble observer and we'll chip in uh in any way you want me to so thank you very much for inviting me and uh over to you Rhiannon. and thank you oh here we go we've got somebody else who's just joining excuse me and thank you ever so much for for that mark and for the generosity of saying that you'll be able to come this evening um right i will stop talking and just open it up to the room would anybody like to begin then i know it's a difficult one to follow but please just unmute. Um, any reflections, thoughts, ideas to share? Um, Dave. So, so for me, for reading it, there's something that really came out of it is um, the transformation of my teaching around how much knowledge-based learning I do and how much um, I do around problem solving, non-standard problems, and, and how I how I link the two. Um, I'm certainly not there in where I think I need to be in that in that sort of um, that, that great lesson that I want to teach on how to solve problems, how to um, support students to think about a complex problem with the knowledge to back it up. But it's certainly, that chapter got me thinking about that and I was just interested in what other people's thoughts were, particularly around around how, how we teach um, the knowledge-based curriculum and, and then how to use that knowledge to solve complex problems. Oh, Matt, excellent. You, if you could pick up from that one then, Matt, Matt off you go. No, I, I just thought my um, reflections were similar and I kind of zoned in on the, on the section, the sort of paragraph near the end around the fluency um, and, and how we, and we've had conversations sort of Dawn and I and our team around, I guess, that procedural fluency and then that conceptual fluency and actually the difference between those two. And I think reflecting on uh, some of the other reading we've done and some of the other conversations we've had, I think those... Um, Again, it makes you think about your own practice, doesn't it? And uh, some of the variation tasks that I think probably quite a lot of us are doing at the moment are those, are, I think, almost what Mark was referring to when he's talking about that deliberate practice of, of these aren't students just following an algorithm. Those tasks are nice to deliberately practice that skill and actually to challenge them at each step. So it's not um, answering 50 of the same questions. And it, ju it just made me think about our own teaching and, and how, I guess, some of the things that we're doing might link into that. But I just thought there was a nice link there between between the two and and thinking about potential around those. No, that's great. And um, uh, I'll I'll just add here. I have um, learned so much more about teaching and quality of modelling and explanation, and specifically then the questions I choose for my examples and for then students to work through through the work I've been doing with the online curriculum, because it's. All it's um so our online curriculum for those of you who don't know they're pre-recorded lessons so they're asynchronous lessons that students um, can be set on something like Google Classrooms and they don't have to have live lessons and we've just got um, 501 lessons from the summer and we're adding hundreds more um, uh, with the team that are doing it at the moment and I don't have all those usual things I will use as a hook or my questioning or the the, the way I can bounce off um, the students in the classroom when I'm doing that, it's all down to how am I going to explain it? How am I going to model it? 
And then the questions I use are so much more important than ever before because I can't tweak them as I go and they need to be able to help to structure the task and the learning and to frame it better for the students um, because I won't be there to help to support them with it. So absolutely the quality uh, and the, the style of the questions I'm, I'm giving to students now, I'm considering so much more than I have ever before. I've been teaching for almost 20 years. All of these layers that we add on and it gets quite complex. Some fantastic reflections there. Would anybody else have anything to add or to develop on? Uh, Dominic. Um, yeah, I hope you can hear me. Um, yeah, the, the the thought of the examples you choose, I, I'm thinking about that so much more in every lesson I, I use. And, you know, 10 years ago, um, I, I wouldn't really think too deeply about it. And I'd get many more questions from the kids. I don't get it, sir. Or, you know, following on, you know, a few minutes later, I'm, I'm not sure what what to do now but now really get i mean it's because it's all about if you've done it right if you've chosen the right example and if you've explained it well enough there is no issue um and you know and the success they build on and and then you know they get that success and that motivates them that that whole you know thing is you know it's perfect so yeah yeah, and I just find it so refreshing that finally it's it's more widely accepted and seen that confidence um, and success and that hook in maths is from them actually being able to do it and us helping them to do it, not trying not to try and contrive some really awful scenario in a question to contextualize it where we think the students might like it. And I, I just remember um, a bit of a farce of a lesson that I had once. I knew the person observing it had a son who liked um, who liked X-Men or something, I think it was. So my Venn diagrams lesson was all around people and X-Men and certain things like that as the hook. And it was just, it was all wrong now when I look back at it that I was trying to use the wrong thing to interest my students because I didn't understand fully what I was doing or I didn't understand then as much as I understand now. And I was a head of department then doing that. And my journey recently has just been astronomical. So um, here we go. That's, that's still too much for me. Anybody else in the room? Dave? Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to talk about the framing of that as well, how when we model something and how carefully we're thinking about it, I've picked up implicitly through the book um, the, the section on establishing a common vocabulary. And so the idea of framing every single word that we use and making sure we have a really deep understanding of what it means so that we can move forward with efficiency. Um, and I thought that connected back to our Daniel Willingham, um, for those of you who were there on that one, about naming something as well, actually naming um, the um, the skill or the, or the knowledge that we have so that it's more memorable. And I just thought that that, that it wasn't an explicit um, sort of part of the modelling there, but it really made me think about my own modelling in my lessons, how important it is to be so precise with everything that you say. Yes. Um, oh, yes, Polly, you can come in first. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Um, so I'm doing the writing a lot of the online lessons like Ranan was just talking about. And I completely agree with what Dave was saying. Um, 
I found that when I read Mark's book and then through doing the lessons, I mean, I've been teaching 17 years or something, but I really feel that I am so much better having written the online lessons at modelling. I always thought I was good at modelling because I'm a maths teacher and we do that so much, but actually there is so much language that I have not been precise enough with. And even sometimes the, the method that I'm particularly using might be the one that I like doing most, but it might not actually be the one that is the best one because later on you might have to switch to a different one or they might have been doing a different one in primary and then you know more misconceptions come in and it's really made me think again with reading the book and everything it's really made me think about how to explain things in a way that introduces fewer misconceptions that is just so true um, and that's what I think maybe this work we've been doing with the online lessons, Polly, has prompted a lot more conversations that I'm having with teams uh, across our schools with the methods booklets that we've got for students. So there's commonality within departments and then the vocabulary I'm using, because when I'm doing my lessons and when I'm teaching and I'm hearing and, and considering my explanation and how I'm going to go through those questions beforehand, um, I find myself thinking, which words do I use for that again? Um, and I, I'll look things up to make sure that I'm being really precise and using the correct terminology now, not just something that I've been used to using recently. And that's one of the other things I really liked about this section of the book is that it took through and held our hand and was very specific in defining each of the key terms that are used through the book and it's referring back to. So rather than just some, uh, a general term being used loosely, like the word mastery can be used in lots of different ways at the moment, even in mathematics and in um, specialist mastery training, shall I say, um, it's, it's really helpful. Oh, here we go. It's really helpful um, to have that reminder of what it means and what it comes back to and that clarity all the time. That's great. So we've got two more people who've joined the session re recently um, and we've just had Lee Overy join us as well. So that was why I went, ooh, there you go there, just to welcome those to the session too. Would Dawn, I'd like to bring you in there, please, if I may. I just want to kind of make that link and build on with the idea that the mastery is that connectedness. And when we're talking about methods and making sure we build on prior learning, it made me think of the William Emery. I don't know if people have seen that you've never seen maths GCSE like this before and the idea of the nodes and the interconnectedness and making sure that when we're delivering maths it is that living breathing journey for the students that they they move through at their own pace and I think that's a really powerful concept that's been delivered through this book and and that's just so important I mean there's, there's so much involved and I know maths is hierarchical, but it's also this intricate web. There is so many different things going on there and we can't afford to lose that interconnectedness either. And also the opportunity to, for things, for students to have depth in what they do and not just be able to answer one question correctly and then move on to the next thing, but as to really investigate with that with them as well. Um, would anybody else like to come in at this moment? Anything to add? Joseph. Yeah, um, interesting because um, 
Uh, I'll just pick on uh, from the book. I pick on um, the common vocabulary and the use of language. And Rihanna uh, emphasized the fact that uh, when writing um, online lessons, I'm one of the uh, um, uh, people writing the online lesson. I don't know whether the rest of the team feels what I feel sometimes. Um, sometimes it takes me some hours in order to decide, okay, what was, what's going to be the structure? How do I link, you know, the first example to the second example and to make it clearer so that I won't end up confusing the students when they are listening to it? And which, which goes to show that um, there is quite a lot of thought, you know, when preparing lessons as well. Um, uh, what, 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 and also I wanted to ask, Mark, if you can throw more light into it when it's time for you to, to speak. Presently, I'm, I'm teaching Key Stage 3 uh yes seven bottom sets and um yeah uh, at the moment some of them some of them are really struggling with timetable timetables is one of the problem and i know that if a student cannot access the basic timetable skills even introducing mastery to them is, is going to be very very difficult so uh it's one of the things that i wanted to ask how do I go about this? Because one of the things I'm doing presently, I'm making them to chant it every lesson, you know, and I don't know whether that's the right way to, to go about it. Even though some of them now begins to, you know, find it very useful, they are recalling some of the things they're learning. And um, it will be very, very useful if you can please throw more light uh, into this as well. And also with the use of common language, these has really helped our school because we recently, Gloucester Academy recently joined the Greenshaw Learning and the structure of our lessons, you know, every classroom, every teacher is using the same language and the, the same structure of our uh, presentation of our questions. I think it's helping the students really well because sometimes too, when, I, when I'm giving an example in the class, I was, okay, I do, this is my turn. Everybody should uh, listen to me. And sometimes I move on you know, to you do without we do, because those are the kind of language we use. We do is when I explain and I have the question, I mean, um, the opportunity to ask questions based on the example I've given. Sometimes the student will remind, you, remind me, oh, sir, we haven't done, we do. You know, so which means they are actually following the sequence of the lesson, you know, and which is good because I believe strongly that if students improve really well and follow the sequence of the lesson, then it will be very easy for, the, for us to introduce mastery. So I really would love to have, hear from your opinion and your advice on, because <laughs> I'm really struggling with, with some of my low ability in key stage three, the time table. What a question. I think that's one that a number of us would have queries about. So here you go, Mark, over to you. <laughs> Um, I think what I'll do is come back to what something Dawn said a moment ago, which was about um, people learning at their own pace, um, which is a phrase we use quite a lot in mastery. Mm. You know, there's a thing about people's pupils will acquire information at different rates, different mm. times, and different metaphors, and so on. So I'm just going to say that. Uh, We've got to be careful around that phrase, pupils learning at their own pace, because for a very large number of pupils, their own pace will be, well, I won't bother them. Um, and really what we mean 
which is I'm sure what, what you guys mean when you talk about this. What we mean when we're talking about that is pupils learning at the pace they have the potential to learn at. And when you're talking there about you have some bottom set kids who are struggling with their times tables, other than some rather extreme special needs, um, so I'm not talking about that, um, and I do mean extreme because this doesn't count for the overwhelming majority of pupils. If pupils are learning mathematics at the correct level for where they are secure, where they truly are secure, then every pupil can learn at pace. Every pupil can grip novel information readily, securely and at pace if they're learning mathematics at the right level for them, for where they're truly secure. And in all the time I've been doing this, all the lessons I've watched and again, you know, doing inspections and visiting schools, it has nearly always been the case when I've seen a pupil not being able to grip something. Let's let's ignore the, the extraordinarily rare bad teacher and they are extraordinarily rare. Um, so let's ignore that for a moment. You're teaching them, you're doing appropriate things in the classroom with them, but they still don't grip it. In almost every case, it's because the thing that you're trying to teach them is not the right level for that individual pupil. That you're trying to teach them something up here and there's a whole load of prerequisite knowledge and information that they haven't gripped. So if a pupil, and it, you know, it sounds like you're trying really hard with these kids, you're doing lots of things that make sense with them. Um, if a pupil is still not gripping, fast recall of their times tables, there will be something much more fundamental at play. It won't be the times tables. It will be something about their appreciation of number, their appreciation of pattern, their appreciation of um, relationships between numbers. It, it will be much, much lower down the curriculum. And what we often do as teachers is, is we've fallen into the trap of thinking there is such a thing as key stage three or there is such a thing as a year 11 or a year four. And there are, they're, they're just nonsense, right? We just made them up. I mean, I literally remember the meetings when we made them up, right? They were just invented. Um, but what there are, what there really are, are individual human beings who know some stuff, who are at some point where they are secure, might be really low down, might be lower down than you want it to be, but they will be secure somewhere. And it's about finding that somewhere and then incrementally building and building and building. And that trap is a really important trap because one of the things that happens to secondary schools, for example, because we're talking about key stage three, is some pupils will arrive in secondary school in year seven, not able to do their times tables, say. Um, they're operating at, you know, below a grade one on GCSE. And then five whole years later, they sit in an examination and still don't get a grade one at GCSE. Five whole years later. Because we think they're 11, so we must teach them this. Whereas if we just took seriously, the fact is they're operating at the level of a four-year-old or whatever it is, we can work it out. They're operating at the level of a four-year-old. And then we build on that properly for five years they'll get at least a four. I promise you, they really, really will. 
because attaining a four, grade four at GCSE, there is not a great deal of cognitive demand to do that. And a really, really switched on pupil at the end of year five and end of year six, a really switched on pupil that's tried hard and worked hard through primary. And they started as a five-year-old and they had five years. They could get a four on a GCSE without too much problem. So, so my advice, uh, not that I'm in any position to give anyone advice, but my advice would be that step back, don't worry about the fact they're called key stage three, consider them as individual human beings and try to work out where those individual children are secure and they will be secure somewhere. And once you've got that, then it's, we're gonna work at the pace that you have the potential to work at, which for everyone, when they're at the right level, is very quick so we're going to build and build and build and build that's uh that's why i'd offer there uh on that thing there just while i'm talking as well um and everyone was talking about well lots of people were talking about language there don't you think it's rather odd that like none of us were math teachers or teachers um you know we might have had we might have enjoyed maths or have maths degrees or whatever, but we weren't born maths teachers, right? Or, or I've never met anyone who was. Do you think it's rather odd that on um, on your teacher training, nobody told you the correct words? That nobody said to you, look, you can use minus, negative, and subtract interchangeably because you're an adult and it all makes sense to you. But if you use those interchangeably with a five-year-old who's learning arithmetic, you're really going to mess them up. Isn't that, isn't that odd that we were never told that? Someone should write a book with all the words in it. So we could just give it to everyone. That's not for me though. Anyway, I'll, I'll shut up there, but hopefully that, that, that is in some way useful. That, that is incredibly helpful. And, and going back to what you were just saying there, Mark, about nobody telling us what those words were. I mean, I'll be quite open here. Um, I thought it was just me being daft that everybody else must know what the words were and what is it I am missing because I don't know what they are and I consider myself to be intelligent and interested and why do I not know and I work um, across a whole range of schools yet I, I'm still trying to work out what they are and I think when we were talking in our previous session about Dan Willingham and we were talking about commonality of methods and approaches and all of those other aspects as well that we said it would be really helpful if somebody just told us what to use that if we just had this these are the names this is the terminology this is what you've got to do and then it would be so much easier for all the teachers and all the students and when people are moving from one thing to another because there's a lot going around at the moment and absolutely right see it name it do it and Doug Limoff talks about that a lot with his teach like a champion as well and wouldn't it be better if we all named it the same thing it would be so much better and more consistent so that's something I'm getting really quite frustrated and, and passionate about at the moment but I'm not a book writing person. I'm hoping somebody else will do that. And in comes, so I'll go Una first because she was waiting after Joseph and then I'll come to you, Dominic. Thanks. I just want to, I just want to kind of say about the language as well. So I was going to say it before Mark started talking as well, that I think, um, I like, 
I've never, I've always been afraid of using the words commutative and distributive with my year sevens. And for the last two years, I've been using it. And actually, I think I underestimated a lot of 11 year olds that they are amazing at remembering words and definitions of words, which I, I really never um, you know, I would I would never have thought because I've always shied away from using those. But now they can articulate themselves so well when we're talking about like, well, why is this possible? It's like, oh, it's because um, you know addition is commutative or something, and it is just beautiful. But and I think like reading this book a couple of times actually has uh, really helped me to just get the confidence that. But also I think the feedback that I get from the students like they just remember these words. Um, also, I think something that again, because I started using algebra tiles over, over the last couple of years, um, like using um, instead of subtract or negative, the additive inverse when we're working with algebra tiles um, and students, like they're not finding that difficult, like they, they understand it. Um, so that's how this book and, and many other books as well have really influenced my teaching and just made me realise that actually, you know, the 11 year olds and above can handle these words as well you know if they if they see it being done as well then they can picture they know exactly they've got an, a mental image of it as well it's absolutely fantastic um but yeah so that's what i want to add i've got loads more to add but i'll stop there <laughs> uh, it, it that just takes me to introducing the words to use them precisely right from the beginning makes such a difference and some of you might have seen when I put on Twitter the other day that I remember going to my daughter's nursery parents evening I know and they said she's really good at naming her shapes but she doesn't always get she doesn't get the diamond right and I said it's because it's not a diamond <laughs> it's a rhombus <laughs> and and my you know my husband sort of looked at me and said what are you doing here I said no we have to call it the right thing from the beginning otherwise I have to unpick that and reteach her again. And that's confusing. They don't need to do that. I, I trained in primary at university and I've taught four-year-olds about split valve digraphs. I'm sure they can cope with much more sophisticated language than we give them credit for. And also maybe because we don't, I don't know the specific language to use well enough in maths to be able to incorporate that as well. Um, additive inverse is actually something I came across recently looking at other people's work on Twitter thinking I'm really be far behind on this talk about behind I better bring in Dominic here <laughs> no just uh, talking about the different words I did a little um, quiz with um, some maths teachers uh, at, an, um, at a meeting um, on different words that that um, I I found when I read Joe Morgan's Compendium of Mathematical Methods, that book, which was just so so interesting, like things like minuend and subtrahend, and and you know I I just wrote all these words down and said, so do you know what it is? And like the math none of the math teachers knew what any of these words were. And it, you know we it, it would be lovely if we you know really looked into which words we should use and what they all mean. And you know so we all know what a numerator is and a denominator. You know, but should 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 we know what a minuend is, a subtrahend? I mean the maybe not you know is that important but it's about you know being specific with the language and really knowing our stuff because we're teaching it so we should we should know we we should and um, the one thing my husband's um a primary math specialist i know you can imagine our household is exciting <laughs> it's for us anyway he's a primary math specialist and he is now he's using that vocabulary with his students he's teaching year five at the moment and he's educating his staff for it as well. So they are using it right from the beginning. 
I only came across that language when I'm teaching sixth form and we're looking at long division algebraically and thinking where, where are these terms come from? Why aren't we using it earlier down? So we do need to pick up on this, don't we, Dominic? And I had not come across many of those until I also looked at Joe Morgan's book. Charlotte, you unpaused a few minutes ago now, so I'd love to bring you in. Um, yeah, do you know what? It doesn't it doesn't matter how many times I hear Mark say this, to be honest, about um, about just having all, all this language and that it's the time. Um, wouldn't it be good if we all had enough time to learn of all of this? If we had, um, I mean, I'm a bit obsessive, so I spend my own time doing it all the time because it's my hobby as well. But I understand that it's not for every teacher. So wouldn't it be lovely if actually we stopped doing some of the things that actually didn't have any impact on, on the pupils and actually did some reading and learn more about our subject um, and the stuff that and I know that in a geeky way I do anyway but what, why not give people time to do that it just doesn't make sense to me I think we spend so much time on pointless things um, that really frustrates me um, and going back to the point about I think this is kind of linked to the the whole key stage three and teaching them from where they're at that's some of the biggest battle that i have at the moment is teach year sevens right year sevens come in we're teaching them all sequences why 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 are we teaching them all sequences um i, I just so look we're getting there slowly but we're still having that battle and this has been yeah like why are we still having this battle this this just frustrates me so much that um all of this has been said over and over and over again and yet we're still teaching year sevens year seven maths um yeah um and it, it is hard it's really hard to fight against from um from that point of view but yeah i think the books the books help massively because it's given me more of a of an argument for it as well so thank you for that <laughs> we're getting there slowly <laughs> Yeah, we are. And that's one of the things, the hopes for this book club is to just give that opportunity to speak with and share ideas with other people who are interested, not like minded people, because that would be boring. We're interested in different opinions and decisions and carving out that time. So I'm hugely grateful to everybody for doing that here. And but I have to take you straight to Mark because he unmuted. So I'm going to give him the floor. I, I, I was I was just going to say, Charlotte, um, I can see you're frustrated about you know, how many times do we have to say this? I was just going to say, wait until you've been saying it for three decades. <laughs> then, then you'll know my pain. Uh, the, the thing about time is interesting. Like, I, I, I think I included this statistic somewhere in the book. Um, on the last TALIS report, and it doesn't change very often, most classroom teachers spend, uh, on average, 24 hours per week doing non-teaching activities. There's an enormous amount of time, enormous amount of time. Just stop doing all of that stuff. Yeah, you know, the, it's it's almost entirely a waste of your time and a waste of that time. Um, and this is really shameless. And I shouldn't do this. But if you want to come and work for me as a new head of maths at Bedford Free School, we're advertising right now and you won't have to do any of the rubbish. So uh, <laughs> there are head teachers out there that recognize, um, you know, what we should allow teachers to do, role play their lessons, think about their lessons, think about pedagogic choice, you know, acquire the expertise of, of, of the teacher. Who cares about the, the admin and, and, and all that kind of stuff that 
these 24 hours are going on so it's not all bleak there are people out there that that recognize that problem and um yeah just go and find find those people to work with uh, and try not to do so much of the the time wasting stuff um yeah sorry i thought i'd just chip that in <laughs> No, I think you talk about it. Um, I've heard you say before, Mark, about working for intelligent people and with intelligent people. And it, it just makes it so much easier. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember my very first, when I first became a maths teacher, which was after industry, I remember going and interviewing seven schools. And I love that. Each of the head teachers, I remember them finding it extraordinarily difficult when I turned up and said, I'd like to interview you to see if I want to work here. <laughs> they were, they were, what are you talking about? You, know, you, should, you should be privileged to work here. But I did that and it took, it took seven schools to find this really, really smart guy. And I was so pleased that was the first place I ended up working. So yeah, work, work for the brightest people you can possibly find. Makes a huge difference. Yeah, I'd, I'd been teaching at the same place for about 15 years, the secondary school that I went to myself. So I, I, I've known it for quite a long time in my life. And then I'm, I met Ben Parnell. For me, just a very intelligent man. And I knew this is a person I want to work for and get to know more about. And since, since working for somebody like that, I haven't taken home a set of books to mark. I haven't had to do that. I haven't written a set of reports in that same way. There is so much less administrative fluff that I do. And my teaching has just improved immensely. My kids are doing better. I enjoy what I'm doing more. I'm getting better at what I'm doing and I'm loving my job again. Whereas a few years ago, I was getting really disheartened. And all of that stuff, Charlotte, time is so important. Without this, we can't get better and we can't continue to enjoy and love what we do and help students to do that. And yeah, opportunity to work at Bedford Free School, I think would sound rather enticing for a few people right now. Dave, I'll bring you in. Um, just to, to second that really, that, um, that within our trust, I think that we get such an opportunity to work with really clever people. and. Uh, and so we have uh, what's called a developmental drop-in as well every two weeks of so the people who work with us will know this but it just has one small actionable step every time on how we're going to improve our practice and it's a non sort of judgmental um this is something we can offer you and these are the things that are working well for you and and it's just that sort of intelligent structure and those intelligent people to work for that you do get the opportunity then to do things like this and i've, I've never been happier at work for this as well um, Dom, I just want to come back to your point on the, the language and the words we need to know and um, some reading in um, the Alex Quigley book, um, the closing the vocabulary gap about looking at the etymology as well of some of the words I think would be something to add to that. Um, but I, I really just wanted to ask, um, Mark, I just invite you to comment um, really on um, a place that I am in in my teaching at the moment where I'm looking at um, the knowledge and I'm looking at how I distribute that knowledge, how I model that knowledge. Um, and it was, I think it's a Tom Sherrington blog that I read over the last week where he talked about handing over the baton and this idea of the we do being that you're both holding this baton at the same time. And it made me think about the problem solving lessons and how long we hold on to that baton with them for. 
how specific we go with our modeling um, and, and how that changes from student to student and, and how much we should be sort of um, guiding them towards being able to work independently and when we should let go of that baton in that process because knowledge teaching I feel like I, I'm, I have more of a strength with that I can teach an isolated skill and then I can ask them to to go and practice something very similar 10 times with some variation in it and look at how it all connects but when it comes to that problem to solve there's so many different ways you can ask it are we just going to pick every single individual problem well no we can't get every single problem like that but at the same time we, we want to hold that baton with them and, and just sort of invite you in for some thoughts around that that's okay yeah the the whole issue of problem solving in mathematics education is a uh, it's one that's much misunderstood um and and quite often looks disastrous um quite often people will give them faux context or faux problems set them up you know i've taught some pythagoras so i better do some problem solving on pythagoras and they could do the procedural they could they understood the technique they were technically skilled why can't they understand this problem why can't they address this problem i think what what people tend to miss in in math education is that problem solving is 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 something that doesn't rely on the knowledge that you're learning about today to solve a problem about pythagoras relies on knowledge that you haven't yet learned yet and that's that's why i often talk about this idea of mathematical maturation that really if you want to do some heavyweight problem solving in mathematics you should be looking at mathematics from content wise and technical skill wise a couple of years previous and this i think this was maybe the most controversial thing that i've written about in the last few years that it's not possible to problem solve with novel information even though you could be accurate technically very detailed and correct with procedure and technique that doesn't mean you can problem solve because problem solving requires that technique to become mature in a framework of new mathematics that you haven't yet learned so problem solving should really be about earlier mathematics um colin foster he he sums this up really well where he says if the problem solving demand is high the content demand should be low it's a really nice way of thinking about it um and people had written about this at the end of the 70s about there was some there was some curricula around at the time where you'd progress through the curriculum and then problem solving from two years ago or three years ago would be brought in and it is about two or three years that that maturation process um, takes so it's it's quite a it's quite difficult to get problem solving right because people want the problem solving tasks to be about the thing they're teaching and, and you can't pull that off you can pull off a you can pull off a good impression of it you can pull off you know you give them a task with a faux context and you hold their hand through it and they get somewhere you know that's that's okay that's not mathematical dispositions that's not someone doing inquiry that's that's just someone following us you know multi-step problems gcs you know the, the gcse problem solving problems well none of those are problems <laughs> there are no problems in the problem questions in GCSEs they're just multi-step questions and that's not the same thing um, and I often think Dave that you can kind of spot it when you've got it right um, because pupils when you when you've got the disposition you need for problem solving 
the classroom changes from I've explained something or I've asked them something or I've posed a situation and 30 hands pop up and the pupils say, I can't do this. That disappears. And what instead happens is you put a scenario on the board, a problem on the board, and the pupils look at it and they think, I can't do that yet. But if I fight with it and if I scrap with it and I attack it, I will be able to overcome this problem. And that's really what we're, you know, as part of the dispositions we're trying to instill in them as they travel through school. If you want them to leave and be able to follow a mathematical career, they need to understand that the mathematician, whenever they face a problem, doesn't know the resolution. That's you're not a math. If you face a problem and you know the resolution, you're not a mathematician. You're Rain Man, right? You know, there's it's not a normal thing. Mathematicians love facing problems and going. It's because I don't know the resolution to that that it's exciting. That's why it's interesting because I don't immediately know how it's answered. And that's a big shift in mathematics classrooms where mathematics classrooms are often typified by the teacher will explain, 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 explain. And then my part of the deal will be I will instantly be able to do anything they ask me to do. And if I can't instantly do it, I put my hand up saying I'm stuck. Whereas true mathematics classrooms are I've got all this technical skill. We've practiced it. I've made sure I'm technically secure. Now there's this problem in front of me. I'm going to fight with it until it becomes clear what's going on here. So, yeah, that, that idea of problem solving really need to bear in mind maturation with the problems you're putting in front of them. And we really need to model in front of children. You know, you can literally say, say out loud, you can literally narrate your own inner monologue. And of course, you're making it up because the problem that you're looking at is one you've seen a million times and you do know the resolution. So you're making it up, but you can narrate out loud when you put a problem on the board, you go, oh, my goodness, I don't know the answer to this. I wonder what I might do to address this. I wonder what skills I have that will allow me to attack this. You need to ensure that the, the, the pupils recognize that's what mathematicians do. Whenever they're faced with something, they sit back and they go, ah, so this is interesting because it's hard. That's why it's interesting. Um, so, yeah, I'd encourage you to, to um, narrate your inner monologue. And it's like thoroughly embarrassing, right? You know, it's why... It's one of the reasons why being observed as a math teacher is so embarrassing because you're doing this narrating. You you look like you look insane while you're doing it to another adult, but to a child, they're just going. This is how it. This is how it happens. This is how they think. This is what mathematicians do. It's kind of part of what uh, when Una was saying earlier about you know I use the word commutative now and they're okay with it. Of course they are, because with words, the first time they ever meet the word is when you tell them it. And you're a teacher and you tell them the word and they go, well, OK, that's the word. I'll, I'll buy that because a teacher just told me it. And if a teacher is modeling to them, this is how mathematicians think when they encounter something they don't know how to solve. Then children go, that's how mathematicians think. I can think like that. I can do that process, too. So that, that's why I'd encourage if, if, if you want to 
move towards a, a, a greater um, skill of, of inquiry with pupils. And if I just say thank you so much for that, because uh, you've also written my best practice briefing tomorrow morning, which is on the rate of thinking. So, uh, so yeah, that is absolutely, I'm going to be taking that quote and just uh, putting it right in there. That's, that is, yeah, that's been really helpful. Thank you, Mark. I shall be sending you a one pound fee. Yes, <laughs> for every word. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're right. We, uh, of course you're right. But you're right because we do... We can't have people thinking that in maths, you always know exactly what it is you're going to do, that it's OK to walk down different paths and see where it leads and then change direction and go somewhere else. But if we don't model that, if we don't narrate our own thoughts on it, how would our students know that that's OK? Oh so much going on here i'll bring lee over in here if i may lee you raised your hand maybe i'm missing hi no, can you hear me yeah we can hear you can you hear me can you... oh you can hear me now right sorry um right just on the on the thread of uh, mathematical language um it just reminded me of <clears throat> a question that i'd actually posed to Mark um, previously um, and I, I, I remember his response as well so the, 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 the question that I was raising was, it was based on consistency of language and um, consistency of teaching but I think the way I'd phrased the question was probably quite bad which is why I got the response I did um, so the question was something along the lines of do you think for in the interest of trying to um, uh, obtain consistency amongst uh, teachers in a department should there be a basic script um, for teaching and what I actually meant from, by that was consistency of language and perhaps consistency of definition or a minimum set of, of uh, words that should be said uh, when teaching a topic and Mark's response was I think uh, having a script would be a bit dull well um, and I, I think it was because I, I didn't um, phrase the question correctly because I don't think it's dull I think it's I think it's a requirement that we all teach using the, the correct language and I don't I don't think you can just hopefully you're not going to disagree now that I've rephrased the question but that things should be taught um, with a minimum set of definitions definitions should be consistent for instance um, and I find that that helps me to, it reminds me that of things that should be said um, I don't find it dull because I can I can therefore then be creative and extrapolate and digress as dynamically as the as the lesson evolves um so that was just something i wanted to say also um just the second second point was um i i understand and agree that we should find um a student starting point and build on it um the issue i've got is i'm in a year 10 bubble currently dealing with a set four of four and um they struggle to to tell me what six times four is. Um, I then ask them what six times nine is. Um, so the, the problem I've got is I've got one year and two terms to um, to do what I can for these children. That's it. Thanks, Lee. Um, I think that's, I'm not gonna get in the middle of this one, Mark. Um. I think the idea of uh, 
having minimal professional expectations on teachers is absolutely fine. Um, the idea of a script, maybe it was, maybe I just misunderstood previously. They, um, scripts are interesting. You know, the, the, the primary national strategy effectively did that, had a script from 1995 to 2010. And that comes in primary rows more than any other uh, time in their history. Um, but then didn't have an impact on secondary. So it's quite, it's quite interesting what can be done there. If you create consistency of expectation amongst the profession, things do change, things lift. Um, scripts tend not to work uh, in the long run, which is why the, the, there was no impact at secondary. But the idea that we should be using very correct, specific terminology, absolutely. Uh, certainly in the work that we do, we every lesson has a thing attached to it called didactics of mathematics, um, the technical detail of the mathematics. It really freaks people out. It really does. It's, uh, that we would that we would expect, and we do. We we say, you know, why why would you not know that? Well, I don't know this question here involves exponentiation. You know, why 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 would you not need to know the definition of that? Of course you do, because you're teaching children this for the first time. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, not a bad thing to do. It comes back again to that, well, the comedy year, the comedy year that we all did called teacher training. You know, it, come, it comes back again to that, doesn't it? That why was none of this made? I, I found it remarkable as someone that come from industry. I found it absolutely remarkable that they let me loose in a classroom. You know, I think I'd had five subject days in, in my teacher training. And then I just thought, well, off you go. It's amazing. I didn't know anything about it, not a single thing about teaching mathematics. You know, a hell of a lot about mathematics, but teaching's not the same, right? You know, communicating a, a new mathematical idea to a child is not the same as knowing that mathematical idea. Um, so, yeah, I think it comes back to that. And maybe, Maybe that's the place where we could say to everyone, here it is, here's the manual, here are the words, here are the terms, the phrases, here are the things you need to know. Um, yeah, I know some of you have heard me say many times before that it's a very odd profession. You, you don't see heart surgeons being told, you just, you just wing it, you'll be all right. A couple of days, uh, but the main thing is that what you should do is do it your own way. Uh, you, you don't see heart surgeons being told that and, and teaching is an odd profession when we know so much about it. Um, I wouldn't advocate let's go all the way to script um, and I certainly don't advocate just wing it. There is a sensible thing in the middle, a professional uh, set of expectations and I, I, I think that what Lee's suggesting there is a would be a good part of that. Yeah, it brings to mind sentence stems as as a way of starting it, and um, how 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 that goes elsewhere. Oh, so much to think about. Um, Ashton, you've raised your hand. Um, I'd like to bring you into the room uh, briefly, if I may. Hello, hi Matt. Um, so I am just first of all, as you may know, a massive fan of your book and everything you do at the set. Um, to the extent that I'm actually 
was referred to the other day by one of the members of my department as a LaSalle fanboy, um, which, which made me chuckle. Um, but, so I guess what, what always, I think that, it's a, you know, not every single person is bought into, into this idea. And for me, it's, it is confusing as to why not. And to why a mastery approach isn't more um, widespread throughout the UK, and I guess some people have um, they see certain problems with it. And so, for instance, some of the the problems that I see, and they're not they're just like small little technical problems. But I think these problems can can be a barrier for people to accepting um, a mastery approach. So, for instance. I know you're a believer in um, homogenizing uh, ability grouping. So trying to get kids that are working on the same kind of age um, in the same groups. But for instance, for us, in our first six weeks of secondary school, we don't have pupils in said classes. So pupils are working in, and, and you've mentioned um, groups where the attainment it, difference in age might be like seven years. And as a, as a teacher, what do you do? What, what maths do you teach them then? What, how do you, how does, like those, those real practical situations, how do you get them at the start of secondary when they are in the right group quickly working at the right age, like finding finding the age that people is working at. I, I don't think this can be done by SATs. It can't be done by one test. It's, I think it's a, it is a challenge and it takes a good little bit of time. Well, it takes a decent amount of time to be able to know our pupils properly, where they are, what maths they should be working on. And I just, I would hate for those first even that first term in year seven to be just a waste. Like, what potentially do you do you have advice for that to to really hit the ground running um, in year seven and get find out where pupils are and find out kind of set them in a such a way that's appropriate for them. Thank you, Ashton. Um, so it is really hard to do, to work out where a pupil is secure. And you can't do it on a test and it takes a little while to do. I will tell you, Ashton, um, and I can do this only because I know you, uh, it gets a lot easier the older you get. So You'll, you'll probably work with some teachers that have been at it for 30 years. Most 30-year career teachers can spend a little bit of time with a pupil and identify a set of very key dispositions that pupils have that are very strong indicators of where they're operating. Yeah, and, th and that takes a long time to acquire that knowledge. It takes a long time to um, be able to spot what those things are. But anyway uh you can't just become 30 years older right so that's not a very practical solution um yes take lots of time to do it uh, 
obviously when they arrive in secondary school you have some data on them you know something about them they don't arrive as blank sheets you could look at um putting them together in broad groups to begin with and then not being afraid to move them that seems to be one of the problems in schools um that have uh are worried about setting them because they're they're worried about i put the people in this class and then they're in that class forever i don't really get that why why can't you move pupils around as much as you want to move move pupils around it's it's not a difficult thing to do um, is there a reason, Ashton, why at your school, did you say you do the first term of mix? Uh, the, it's the first half term. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure why exactly it's the first half term. There's, I know there's, there's some like technical issues in terms of like sorting registers and everything out like that. But I feel we test them a couple of times before we set them. So mm. we kind of like, we like to have this experience with them and to get two, maybe even three kind of assessments of them in before we decide. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't know why we, we were half term, to be quite honest with you, but okay. I know that it's probably, I'm probably not the only school that does that, I think. No, you're definitely not the only school. It's very widespread. That um, It's very widespread that, Schools across the country waste six weeks of children's lives. Um, now, if there are technical issues like time tabling and registrations and whatever, you know, you should never let something that could be dealt with by a functional imbecile get in the way of people's educational progress. You know, that that just needs sorting. That needs nailing. Your head teacher needs to say, "This is not good enough. Fix it." Um, and if they're the problem, they should perhaps do a different job um, but if there is an educational reason for it and lots of people will argue there is so people will say things like getting comfortable in the new school and building relationships with uh, with with other children and with teachers and people will say things like you know the fear of putting children in the wrong group but that's because they don't understand that groups can be fluid there's no reason why you can't move people around um i'm not i'm not trying to avoid the the question it's just an unusual question for me because i i absolutely don't accept that children should arrive or need to arrive in secondary schools with a seven-year attainment gap as they do at the moment and the point of a mastery process is that when you do it and you implement it from day one, from reception, and you implement it properly all the way through secondary school, it has been shown time and time and time and time again that the gap aged 11 will be as little as 12 months. And then it doesn't matter which class they're in. You put them in any old class. Um, mastery cannot work when there's a big attainment gap just because of the speed that you need to you need to progress through um, and the correctives that you need to be able to do so it's about getting rid of that attainment gap there is it's interesting to say why you know why why doesn't everyone subscribe to this idea of mastery and you know, the sad thing is that will never be the case and you really have to ask yourself why is it you're in this why why are you in this career 
And for me, it was always, well, it would be really nice if individual people knew more about the subject I love. And that's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to get individuals to know more about the subject I love, and maybe they'll fall in love with it too. And then there are people in the game who think, uh, one the reason I'm in this is because, you know, GCSE grades or progress methods or whatever it is. Um, and that, that group, because that's what drives them, grades on, on, on examinations, that group of people, and maybe some of you are in that group, that's okay, I don't hate you if you are, um, but that group of people, they fundamentally believe that human beings are differently capable. They have different cognitive potential. That's why they'll all get different grades and we'll, you know, we'll have top sets and bottom sets and whatever. And I just don't believe that's the case. I believe every child is born with the exact same cognitive potential. I will again put the caveat that there, there are some very limited extreme um, cases of, of special needs, very extreme cases, where in the time they have that school, it's not going to be enough, right? So I get that. But everyone else, 99.9% .9 of the population, has the cognitive potential in their 11 or 12 or 13 years at school to learn everything they're supposed to learn in that time. And what has happened is, is mastery is presented as, because it relies on homogenization, it's presented as an anti-mixed ability, anti-mixed attainment um, group. Um, and if you're in that group, uh, you, you get some interesting DMs on Twitter. But uh, it's presented as anti-mixed attainment. It isn't. What it's anti is it is anti the notion that all children cannot learn well. Mastery is based on the fact that all children can learn well, given the right conditions. And it's incumbent upon us to create those right conditions. That's why I'm in the game. You know, I'm, I'm going to create the conditions that you can, if you want to, fall in love with my subject too. And you might choose to fall in love with art or music or literature or whatever. That's great too. But I, I'm going to make sure that you have the, the chance to fall in love with my subject. And I can do that because I fundamentally believe that everyone can learn well. The both the setted and the mixed attainment gangs, both of those gangs, believe that children are have different potential, that children should be sorted, that school is a sorting process. Sort the wheat from the chaff. These children can go and do those careers, and these children can go and do those careers. Whereas I think every baby being born today, identical potential, and they can do whatever they want in life, as long as we create the right conditions. That's, that's the fundamental core to mastery. All children can learn well. So when you say, Ashton, why is it the case that not all schools do this? It's because we're all different. We're all human beings, and we all have different beliefs and value systems. And there are people who believe all children can learn well. I hope some of you do. And there are people who fundamentally in their heart believe there are good learners and poor learners. 
I, I just don't buy that. But that's why it will always be the case, Ashton, that there are different people fighting for different causes. If you like the mastery cause, find other people who do and do really good things in those schools with, with your pupils. That's what I'd suggest. So, anyway. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm on the verge of ranting, so I'll stop. <laughs> and and oh, I don't I don't really know what to say now to follow that. But that was it's just so insightful. Um and your points are always articulated with such clarity. That's what I really appreciate. Um and I think it's with great regret now, actually, because we are at 15 minutes over for our little book club session, looking at chapter three of, of your bookmark, but it's done it exactly what we hoped that it would. And it goes down all sorts of different roads and avenues and ideas and suggestions. And I feel I've grown already so much from it. And I've just, I've just made pages of notes. And so I don't trip over my tongue any more than I already am, because my brain is full. I would just like, um, to finish with, um, I'll bring Dave in, if I may, <laughs> drop you in it, Dave, just for a, a, a single takeaway reflection on today to end the session with as well, although that's going to be pretty hard after what you've just said there, Mark. Thank you. Um, Dave. Oh, is this, uh, yeah, I certainly can't follow it. So I'm just going to have to be really selfish and say something that I've personally taken away from that today and it's the idea of that problem solving and taking my mind away from problem solving being a GCSE style question and actually to what proper mathematical inquiry is all about um, and the idea that you need to be looking at um, content which is from a couple of years prior for me that is my takeaway to think about getting the students to struggle to be allowed to struggle in that classroom with materials they might have seen a couple of years ago. And, and, and that notion, that idea is, is my personal takeaway from this today. But it's been wonderful, Mark. Thank you so much for taking the time for us. Yes, thank everybody so much for this evening. If anybody else does have any further takeaways that they or reflections that they'd like to share, then please do email them through. Um, thank you, Ashton. Off you go. Please do email them through to me. and. Um, apart from also sharing this recording, we're hoping to turn it into a podcast so then it doesn't matter that my hair goes skew if on, a, on, a, on another one. Um, and I'll try and do a sketch note or something as well um, just to bring it all together. So thank you all so much for this evening. Thank you, Mark, um, from, the, from the bottom of my heart. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good evening, everyone. Thanks.